Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, December 16th, 2020. I'm John Budhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And joining us today, the author of Commentary's January 2021 blockbuster cover article, Framed and Guilty, Bloomberg's own Eli Lake. Hi, Eli. Thanks for having me, John. Hi. So, Eli, this is, I think, is this the fourth, the third or the fourth piece you've done for commentary on the Russia scandal? It's the, it's the third magazine piece and the fourth overall. Right. So this is the yeah. last word on Trump and Russia. Uh, that is the subtitle of the piece, and we are going to get to it in a minute. But first, let's talk about how the wonders of the coming vaccine uh, are being um, pissed upon by figures in the public health community who want you to know that even after you get the vaccine, you are going to have to wear a mask, socially distance, not see your relatives, and live in a hobbit house uh, under the Shire for at least 50 years, uh, as I understand it. This was, the, uh, this was the message of Dr. Vin Gupta of Yale, who was on MSNBC informing us that since we can't be sure that even if after you get the vaccine, you might be contagious, or you might not have sufficient antibodies, or you might this, or you might that, or you might the other thing, you'll still have to continue to live as we've been living until 385 billion people around the planet are given the vaccine, otherwise it's not going to work. So let me just say that this is in a year of dumb, counterproductive, stupid, uh, and um, a de discrediting and delegitimizing spins being offered by the public health community. This ranks among the dumbest since, no, no, you don't have to wear a mask. Don't wear a mask. You don't have to wear a mask. That's that's a panic. Don't wear a mask. Well, that was for your. That was lying for your. That was the platonic ideal of the noble lie. And so is this. <laughs> Precisely. No, it is. Yeah, because this is what he said. Dr. Ben Gupo's on um, with Chuck Todd on NBC said, you know, he he knows some people who plan on getting. It's a two boost shot, right? So after the second boost, you're done. And he said, even after the second boost, he knows people who are going to just immediately going to jump on a plane. And I'm sorry, that is not how it's going to work for you. Quote, just because you get vaccinated after the second dose does not mean you should be traveling uh, or uh, that you're liberated from masks. So in other words, you know, we don't know. He doesn't know. There hasn't been enough research to suggest whether or not you can still contract the disease. And even though you don't get sick, you might transmit it. And I know, in that sense, I know just as much as Dr. Van Gupta does about this, uh, about what happens after you get the second dose. So I am saying, you're liberated, you're free. <laughs> Both of us have the precise same amount of information and expertise to deliver at this point. And so I am therefore saying, he has no <laughs> idea what he's talking about. And he can't prove me wrong. By the way, it's, I just wanna say, it's not just Vin Gupta. This is the messaging um, in a lot of places about the vaccine. Uh, you, you'll see it all over the place. It's this, it's this concerted effort to keep people from 
feeling liberated after the vaccine. Well, there's also there's a political reason for that, too. If you're looking, if you're watching, as some of us are, the ongoing uh, debates among the teachers unions and school administrators and, and parents about when to reopen schools and particularly in places like, you know, Chicago, L.A., here in D.C., um, you'll see there's this new strain of argument being made by the teachers union that's like, you know, even with vaccination, first of all, we're not sure it's safe. And second of all, that doesn't mean it's going to be safe because maybe these elementary school children who'll be, who are far down on the list for vaccination won't be vaccinated. So even if we are, we could still be in danger. And so it's, it's a, also a way of framing some of these political power plays that are being used by teachers unions in particular, to prevent the reopening of in-person learning. So they're, they're, it's, it's one of those wonderful arguments that has so many useful uh, applications for people who are in the midst of political power plays. This is a harsh verdict to render, but I'm never, nevertheless going to render it. Um, these teachers, these public servants, these public health experts, they like it. They like this. This is good for them. And it might not be good for you, but they have no problems with the status quo. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. Yeah, it's a burden. Yeah, it's harmful. But there have been professional benefits that they've accrued. And as a result, they're perpetuating the conditions that have contributed to your suffering over the last, 20, over the last year. I, I am more than willing to entertain that that is true of a great many of them. But I think that something else is going on. Uh, a friend of uh, mine, a friend of my family's, uh, Raquel uh, came up with this term. If you if you are if you are a Jew and a, like a, a practicing Jew, um, she said, uh, you know, well, you know, we're we're seeing so and so, or we were going to see so and so, but um, he's glot COVID, meaning a glot kosher is a is a quality of keeping kosher <laughs> that refers to uh, following the rules with the utmost strictness and there are gradations of performance and practice uh, in all faiths right and and but you know when you in judaism uh because the rules are enumerated not only in the torah but also in the oral law and the talmud um you could literally spend your entire life doing everything you can minute by minute to conform with the prescribed rules of behavior as laid out by the faith. And uh, for a great many people, th these rules are the liberation, even though they are constraining. Like ultra-Orthodox practice is a form of life organization that is cosseting, that is purposeful, gives you meaning and all of that. And there is a whole world of the glot COVID. And the glot COVID say, don't see anybody, don't go outside don't get on a plane, don't go into a store, you know, and, and, and in the world of the glot COVID, anyone who doesn't follow every rule meticulously into the letter is a little bit trafe, is a little bit, uh, is, is breaking the law a little bit to a lot of a bit and um, is deserving of a certain kind of disapproval. It's the disapproval of the person who is unwilling to follow the logic of the life that they have chosen to live to its, its utmost. And in the world of public health, the orthodoxy has become, we need to do whatever we can to protect public health workers. 
uh, because they are the ones who are on the line and who are the most in danger. So that's why we had to lock down in the first place to keep the system from being overwhelmed and not to get public health workers sick. And then it became an orthodoxy on its own, which is that you can't do anything to get anybody else sick. Anything that you do has reverberations and consequences outside your own person and your own body. And so Dr. Vin Gupta is glot COVID. But this is where the rubber meets the road, because that cannot be the standard for a free society, that you are, you are creating a shame structure under which anybody who has to get on a plane is evil. That's insane. First of all, there have been like two or three transmission cases on the planet Earth where the virus, we, we can trace it back to people getting it on a plane. And that's the first place that he went. You're not getting on a plane once you get the vaccine. Well, if you're getting the vaccine, the hell not you're not going to get on a plane. You might have to get on the plane without the vaccine. Has anybody here flown over the course of the pandemic? Because I have. No, but my kids have. All right. Yeah. So I took a cross-country flight and it's just like normal. It really is. It, the, the plane was to capacity. The airport was relatively packed. Uh, people are wearing masks and they're distancing and you can't sit next to each other. They've blocked off the seats, at least at EWR in New York airport. But the experience was status quo ante with the exception of mask wearing. Right. But, you know, I can even understand the notion that people are, you know, under certain circumstances, people are going to have to wear masks. Uh, you know, if, if they go to a movie theater, so if they go to a space where they're going to be inside for a long time, in part to make other people feel comfortable, right? You're going to inconvenience yourself to make other people feel comfortable, unless everybody gets some kind of a tattoo that says, I've been vaccinated. You should only have to be in an... for uproariously hilarious movies where you're going to be laughing a lot. Right. <laughs> but, right. but for tragedies or dramas, yeah. it's fine. Or something boring, you know. Yeah, if it's like a boring tenet, movie, don't yeah, worry about it. If you want to go it. see Tenet, don't worry. All your, <laughs> yawning, yawning is bad. That's bad, okay, right. by the way. So is crying. Crying, yeah. You're just generating, yeah. you're expectorating. You're just yeah. misting constantly. Yeah. But of course, we also have this, well, you can't expect everyone, you know, people can't, this is one of Noah's things here. Like, oh, you're like, there's going to be a world of haves and have nots, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. But that's, of course, one way out. But if the idea is until the end of 2021, and Fauci has said this, not just Vin Gupta, a bunch of other people said, we're going to have to live incredibly cautiously until the end of calendar year 2021. Well, you know what? The hell with this is where you can start saying the hell with you. Because getting a vaccine is itself acting cautiously. You know, getting vaccinated is not, you know, yeah, I mean, we, we should talk about it like it's nothing. But I mean, the point is, it's an inconvenience to go do it. You have to do it twice, all of this. And then nothing changes. This is why I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm monopolizing here. But the, we were talking about this yesterday, how the press leans on catastrophism, leans toward catastrophism to the exclusion of likelier scenarios. Isn't the likelier scenario that this vaccine behaves like every other vaccine? Why don't you get MMR? And then all of a sudden, you got to be worried. You got to be worried. You're still transmitting rubella. This started this exact line of thinking of the sort of the, the, the never-ending virus started with the argument, also um, uh, popularized by Fauci, that, uh, and this is months and months back, that even if you get the virus and then you get better, 
there is no reason to think that you will have uh, long-term immunity to the virus after that. There were, this was not based on anything. Some people say, well, there's, a, there's an anecdotal case in Korea where someone got reinfected. But this is, it was, has nothing to do with studies or anything. And there was a, there was a face-off between Fauci and, Ron, and uh, Rand Paul about this uh, during a Senate hearing. And um, there was all this like social media, Fauci owns Rand Paul. And I was, Rand Paul was right. Rand Paul made the case that you are, you are saying that this virus, uh, w- without evidence, you are saying that uh, you're concerned that this virus will act li- unlike every other virus in, the, in this circumstance. And isn't there, is there, there's a more pernicious effect too, which is that when someone like Dr. Gupta says these sorts of things, he erodes the trust and confidence that we want the population to have in public health authorities. So we already have an anti-vaxxer movement. We already have trusted institutions kind of at an all-time low, and Trump certainly feeds all of that. But I would say that the people who are sort of, you know, the catastrophizers are also feeding it in a way by saying these things that are these extreme scenarios that I think an average, relatively intelligent person would say, that sounds ridiculous to me, to hell with them. And we're and we are we find ourselves, I think that's a very important point. We find ourselves in the position. Eli, that we don't have any trust that the leaders right. of this society are hewing to the same rules they're insisting on everybody else. That right. was that part makes of the, it even worse. That right, right. That was the that was the Thanksgiving shocker. Right, the mayor right. of Denver, uh, Andrew Cuomo, Gavin Newsom, Sheila Kuehl going out to eat just before she's making it impossible for any restaurant to be open in L.A. Like over and over and over again. Them, uh, you know, people go jetting off saying. That that guy was at the uh, mayor of Austin, making a "you right. can't leave your house" video while he was in Cabo celebrating yeah. his daughter's wedding. I mean, well, there's also it's also there the idea of science as being something that we should be able to place some faith in, and the work that scientists do, and we have a it, it is nearly mirac- miraculous that we've gotten. Uh, several different vaccines up and running that seem effective that we're going to be able to distribute. That's amazing. We should be celebrating that and we should be encouraging people to see this as evidence of how our scientific and and R&D in this country and in other parts of the world is is amazing. But instead you have, and I think this is going to be a particular problem for the Biden administration, which ran on, we're the party of science, we're the party of science. Well, if the party of science is using science as as a cudgel in order to pursue its own social agenda, people will, I think, appropriately stop trusting every time they open their mouths about science. And public health is not science. Exactly. Public health is sociology. Policy making, yes. The, the public health, the leading public health official in LA, uh, whose name is Ferrar or Ferrer, has a PhD in communications from Podunk U. So we can call her Dr. Ferrer, by the way, according to the, <laughs> according to the Jill Biden rules. But, you know, what she has done in her life is get herself into the public health bureaucracy and try to affect social justice protocols using the doctrine of public health. That is why it was second nature to the public health establishment to say it was okay to go out to protests, even though you were supposed to stay in, inside for, for COVID, because the idea that public health involves the expression of outrage at police brutality is public health, according to them, just as staying inside for a virus is public health also. This is a compromised field. It is not what it appears to be. 
and it should be behaving with extreme caution and the communications of how people are supposed to behave in this period need to need to have a certain element of caution about them and not telling people that they're going to be on lockdown for another 360 days. That will make people say, well, that I'm not going to get the, the vaccine. Or conversely, I can't follow any of these rules, so I'm going to follow none of them. There's no humility on the part of these people who presume to speak for capital T, the capital S science. These are the same people who are saying, you know, it would be a medical miracle and we should not expect the delivery of a vaccine before the end of calendar year 2020. And it's here. And none of them have revisited the lack of faith they demonstrated in the capacity of public-private partnerships and human ingenuity and you know, every engine pulling in the same direction to yield this this miracle and rather than evince some humility they're right of going ahead and saying you know we're, we're masking and social distancing until 2022 when that's surely not going to be the case i can tell you right now it's not going to be the case not because it's not necessary but because it's not going to happen it won't happen well, so, what, so one, what is the point of of demonstrating hold on, your, I, I would just would say though that there's one difference though which is that we're seeing like another thing that it, it, it's not in the space but like for example the nba is starting their season this month, and they're not doing it in a bubble. And there are certain kinds of other elements of the society that are kind of acting as if they're gonna be reopening at this point. So that's another disconnect, which I think further discredits some of the alarmism from the experts and contributes to the sort of erosion of trust, which has been a long time coming, but has certainly been intensified in the Trump presidency and the COVID crisis. Yeah, well, again, if it's like, oh, so it's okay for basketball to reopen, but right, it's not exactly. okay for like, my restaurant to reopen. Like what? Yeah, they're, they're, they're multi-billionaire pituitary cases, and I'm a guy from Pakistan who, you know, like spent 12 years washing dishes to make enough money to open a food stand or, to, you know, to open a diner, and now you're, you're literally going to crush my entire dreams and hopes and my entire life while some, you know, some you know, some guy who, like I say, you know, like God gave him seven feet is going to be able to par parlay his business while he makes $30 million a year. Where our, our, this of course is the other story of the, of the pandemic, which is that thought workers, people who use their brains, people who don't use their hands, were able very easily to transition into a reduced set of circumstances while working from home because of the last 30 years in progress in the internet and broadband and all of that. And everybody in America who works with his hands is in a crisis, an enduring long-term crisis uh, that also like the 2008 meltdown is going to take them years to recover from once everything does get back to normal because they're going to have been buried in a hole for a year and a half. Uh, we hear, by the way, just now that uh, they're on the verge in Washington of passing the second stimulus, which is very good news, but of course raises the other thing, which is somehow the world of people who needed, desperately needed the second stimulus because of the ongoing nature of this crisis, didn't have the political for, didn't have the political, uh, I don't know what you call it, like uh, effect to force the parties to the table and make this deal because they were all going to be ruined if they didn't do it. And you know why? Because they weren't us, because we don't need it. 
we in the media don't need it. If you're employed in the media, you were doing okay. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nightmare. And, and Dr. Vin Gupta can, you know, says, trained for 12 years to walk around in a mask all day in a hospital. Like that's part of the joke here is that medical professionals, you know, who work around, you know, in hospitals and stuff like that, have spent their lives getting used to where, you know, getting used to masking. That is not true for the rest of us. They know they won't be policed either. They know that the, to the extent that these re uh, restrictions are policed, that the targets are going to be the people who provide them services. They don't really know. They just kind of come in their shadows who pass through their lives. They're, they, they have no impact on their, they, they know them academically. They know them as sort of a constituency, a demographic of which they're aware, but they know that they're not going to encounter the, the restrictions on their lives that they're imposing on others. I mean, you know, and, I have and, to say, uh, we, oh, oh, sorry, go ahead. A point that you've made in other contexts now, uh, which is really a very important one, the, the same dynamic with the Democrats and Biden about how the press wasn't really their friend by not covering them critically or normally. The same is true with a lot of these public, I mean, it, it, there has been very little sort of mainstream elite press pushback on this stuff. And in fact, they've mainly reinforced it. And that is a failure of those journalistic institutions to just raise basic questions. And the people who have James Meggs, you know, and his great pieces and others, it hasn't really kind of filtered into the center of the news stream, which is what all of these institutions are going to be very responsive to. So there's been a kind of breakdown there because I think, you know, the press should play a role of saying, wait a second, this sounds ridiculous. It's inconsistent. Why would you do this? Why would you not do that? And it really was mainly, it was like commentary and conservatives, but it wasn't, you know, you didn't see a real mainstream media pushback on that. And that's a huge failure of journalism. Uh, similar to the kind of failure to really vet Biden in the campaign, I think. Right, and we, we, we're going to get to that in your piece yeah. in a minute. But first, I want to talk to you guys yeah. about our sponsor today, the Bonson Group. You've been hearing about this for a couple of weeks now. The Bonson Group stands against the field that it is in of professional financial and investment advice because the field is awful. Most financial advisors are lazy, disengaged, and uninterested in the real work required of properly stewarding their clients' assets. They don't work very hard. A lot of them work 25 hours a week. And when you want to talk to them about important stuff like how markets work, how public policy and investing intersect, what the relevance of monetary policy is, you might as well be talking to a tween watching the Disney Channel, given the level of sophistication that they display. The work ethic and intellectual capacity of so many financial professionals leaves a lot to be desired, but that is not the case for the Bonson Group, a bi-coastal wealth management firm with over $2.5 in assets under management. Every single day is an intellectual journey. Client communications are a way of life. Every bit of their perspective on the economy and capital markets is fresh, developed by the Bonson Group itself and, uh, you know, and, and tested by its own results and where every client is given his own bespoke family office experience. Read their inve weekly investment commentary at dividendcafe.com. Read their daily market updates at thedctoday.com. And check out the Bonson Group for a refreshing antidote to the laziness and intellectual spaghetti that is today's investment advice industry. That's the Bonson Group. Check out DividendCafe.com, check out the DCToday.com, and get to know the Bonson Group today for your wealth management needs. So Eli Lake, your piece, Framed and Guilty, a very comprehensive analysis of the history of the Trump-Russia investigation, begins in an interesting place, not where you might expect, 
with an undercover news story, the Hunter Biden story? How, how so? Well, I thought, well, we, we now know that there, that it looks that these emails that the New York Post initially ran were authentic, meaning that there was a, a, at least a, a very serious effort to try to um, have, get Hunter into business relationships of a trade on his access to his father uh, that involved China, and uh, you know we know earlier about Burisma and things like that. So the there is something there, um, and yet you know the story of how the post came in possession of these emails uh, still you know I don't think is true. Um, that doesn't necessarily. I mean, we should say we should say it's not how the post came in possession of the emails. Yeah. It is how it is how the emails surfaced and how right. the laptop came this laptop that somehow supposedly was dropped at these three laptops dropped at a Wilmington, uh, Delaware, uh, computer repair shop, how that came to be the posts publication of the materials, the post adjudged to be accurate, but it's more the provenance of the emails themselves and the laptop and that story that does not, that seems extraordinarily fishy. Right. So right. It, it puts you in this kind of strange position where it's like, well, listen, the, the actual information is correct and I think worthy of coverage. And I should say, I don't think that social media, I think the social media companies were terrible as this podcast and, 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 and publication has said for trying to censor the, the, the publication. I was completely on the New York Post side in that they should not have had their account suspended. Um, and now we know that there is an a US attorney investigation into Hunter Biden and these dealings and all of that, but nonetheless, it's, it, it, it's also true that, you know, it, it seems to me that there was some sort of foul play. Um, there is a fair argument that people were asserting in the run-up to the election, the entire thing was Russian disinformation. And there was no evidence of that, even when, you know, the director of national intelligence was, was making clear there wasn't evidence that this was Russian disinformation. Um, and that's a fair point that I think elements of the left and, and certainly the elements of the right have, have made. That's not the point. My point is that the sort of story of, you know, how these laptops surfaced looks like there's something else that's going on there. And we later learned from Ben Smith's very good column before the election that, you know, there was a concerted effort to try to drop this late hit, um, you know, and, and, you know, provide a confirmation and, and, and get other uh, more mainstream publications, I guess, I have nothing against the New York Post, they run my column from time to time, um, to, to bite on this, which is sort of what typical opposition research, typically how it works. Um, so I wanted to sort of present this as to say that it's possible for there to be some sort of wrongdoing in the case of Hunter Biden, which is a clear case of kind of influence peddling. Um, and at the same time, you know, be the victim of um, uh, sort of foul play as well. And how the story surfaced was not entirely fair to him. And even now, an word leaking out of an ongoing investigation by a U.S. attorney typically is not a great thing. It usually prejudices the investigation. It's unfair. What if they turn up nothing? Um, you know, so all of that is an example of that. It's, it's, it's always sort of more muddy. And in the era of Trump, it seems like in every sort of major news development, particularly on Trump Russia, you have to take a side that either one side is totally guilty and the other side is totally innocent or vice versa. Um, so what I try to do in this piece is to try to say, everybody behaved poorly. Everybody has some degree of guilt. 
And if you really want to understand what happened in Trump Russia, you have to accept that uh, there are really no angels and pure victims here. Right. So guilty and framed. Hunter Biden appears to be guilty of some version of influence peddling and the way that the story was delivered uh, seems to constitute a kind of framing in the right. sense that something untoward probably went on here and we just don't know what. So the Trump analysis that you're providing is that from the very beginning of this investigation, uh, people were being framed and Trump was being framed, uh, but that also Trump's behavior toward Russia marks him as guilty, if not in a legal sense, then let's right. say in a moral leadership or, uh, or gu guilty of um, either a misunderstanding, misapprehension, or a misrepresentation of the kind of threat that Russia poses to the United States. Well, specifically, I would characterize Trump's guilt as follows. One, he lied and lied and lied about not having any business in Russia when his personal attorney was pursuing a Trump Tower in Moscow during the campaign. And that does present a potential for coercion uh, by Russia because they know something that the president or the, or the nominee at the time uh, was saying that was not true. And they could threat, have threatened to expose that lie. Now, you could argue Trump is shameless. He lies all the time. It, wouldn't, he, it doesn't have the same effect as it would on a normal politician. And I'm open to all of that. But that's one area where I think you have to criticize him. Another area where, which involves uh, his one-time campaign manager, Paul Manafort, he was in debt to a dangerous Russian oligarch named Oleg Deripaska. And his uh, deputy at the time, Rick Gates, was funneling internal campaign information to someone named Konstantin Kalimnik, who uh, you know, there appears to have been a Russian spy. Um, it should be said that Konstantin Kalimnik has had contacts with all kinds of Americans, including the U.S. Embassy uh, in Ukraine and including the International Republican Institute, which is very much associated with the late Senator John McCain. Um, and if indeed he has been an intelligence, a Russian intelligence officer for all of these years, then the, the bigger scandal in my view is that the um, FBI uh, was unable to sort of see all of this that, right, that was right in front of their nose, so to speak. He was, he got several times he got visas to travel to the United States. So if he wasn't being a Russian spy, as the Senate Intelligence Committee says he was, um, then the, what, was, what has the FBI been doing in terms of counterintelligence all these years against Russia? Um, that, so that's another area where I would say there's, say there's guilt. Certainly this is not related to it, but Trump's um, ability as the president of the United States to go after people who were in his government who were either whistleblowers or he perceived to be kind of plotting against him, calling individuals out, uh, people like Alexander Vindman or Fiona Hill um, during the Ukraine uh, impeachment inquiry and everything uh, is a terrible behavior for a president. And I think really did cause um, real problems for the targets of his ire because he has so many devoted social media fans. Um, and I think also the fact that Trump repeatedly, as the president of the United States, denied Russia's role in its active measures in political warfare against the United States advanced Russia's interests because the big part of the strategy of his own government, according to H.R. McMaster, his second national security advisor, was to expose what the Russians had hoped to accomplish 
in the shadows. That is a, that's very important in terms of countering what Russia tends to do, which is they do a lot of terrible things that they then deny that they did. And uh, the object is to sort of sow confusion in populations and make sure that they do not get blamed for this kind of thing. So it is in America's interest to make sure that the Russians are blamed for this kind of thing. And Trump time and again would just say, I don't see the evidence the Russians were doing, even as his own government, his own Justice Department were indicting the actual GRU officers who are responsible for hacking democratic emails and such things. Okay, so that's the, that's the guilty part. Yeah. So let's get to the framed part, because the framed Absolutely. part is the part, uh, everybody, you know, everybody uh, outside of uh, Trump's fans uh, can sort of agree on uh, the set of facts that you've laid out there. He said stuff in Helsinki that he shouldn't have said. He mistreated his own staffers who were just trying to follow American policy as they understood it, uh, you know, and, and, and said nice things about Putin when a president shouldn't say nice things about Putin. So everyone agrees on that from, you know, Eric Swalwell to John Bolton. Uh, what, what is the framed part that so many people refuse to acknowledge? Okay, well, let's start with the FBI. Um, and in earlier commentary essays, I've, I've gotten into more of this stuff, but the FBI accumulated a lot of evidence among, on the initial people that they investigated for possibly colluding with Russia when they were on the Trump campaign. I'm thinking of Michael Flynn, Carter Page, um, George Papadopoulos. Uh, they accumulated a lot of evidence through their awesome investigative powers, sending, um, you know, uh, sending informants, uh, you know, to, to, to meet with folks that showed there really was no collusion with these individuals. And yet they kept these investigations open and ultimately announced there was this investigation when everything that they were turning up would suggest that their theory of this case was wrong. So the decisions to keep the investigation open, particularly in the case of Michael Flynn, um, was definitely, in my view, abusive. Um, another area of abuse is that in order to get a surveillance warrant on Carter Page, who was an unpaid advisor to the campaign um, and kind of a weird Russianist, uh, they submitted um, apps, you know, unverified opposition research to the, to the secret surveillance court to get the warrant and continued to renew that when they had lots of information to suggest that this opposition research known as the Steele dossier was a bunch of bunk. Um, finally, you have James Comey himself, who was the director of the FBI, who was telling the president that he was not a, a, a subject or he wasn't a target of the investigation, while he was leaving the impression to everybody else that indeed he would be. And the FBI team that was investigating it, we know this from the memoir of uh, one of the top FBI agents who's no longer with the Bureau, uh, Peter Strzok, they all kind of knew that eventually the president would be a target of the investigation. So here's Comey sort of saying, no, 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 you don't have to worry, it's just a few bad apples, um, while his FBI was doing everything they could to keep this investigation open uh, in the hopes that it would eventually ensnare the president. Um, so all of that, I think, uh, you know, really was a despicable abuse of uh, power from the FBI leadership, and uh, they deserve a lot of blame. The other big part that hasn't gotten as much attention is the Mueller team itself. Um, there's a, a lot of stuff now from someone named Andrew Weissman, who's a longtime Department of Justice attorney, um, who's written his own memoir of all of this. Uh, and he says pretty clearly that the Mueller probe was meant as a check on the president's power. 
The Mueller probe was supposed to be to determine whether the Trump campaign conspired with Russia in the Russian efforts to interfere in the election. And he acknowledges, he says, no, we were trying to, this was a check on the president's power. And I think that in this respect, what they did was they in kind of started enforcing the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which sounds really bad. I get into this in this piece in such a way that they threatened, you know, massive criminal prosecutions that would send people to jail for many years unless they cooperated. The problem is until 2017, the Foreign Agents Registration Act was never invest was never really enforced. The worst that would happen is that you might have to pay a fine, but usually you would just have to re-register with more accurate information. And um, you know, Michael Flynn is kind of, we've talked about that before. He was really much, very much caught up with it. It was the threat of this Farah uh, enforcement that got him to eventually acknowledge uh, that, you know, to say that he, he, uh, he misled the FBI, something that he has since revoked. Um, but it's also the tool that they used to um, basically try to get Manafort to cooperate, who was the uh, former campaign advisor, his deputy, Rick Gates, and many others. And, uh, you know, in, in one context, you could say, well, they got Al Capone on tax evasion instead of murder. On the other hand, the, Trump had won, you know, a presidential election. And to treat the president of the United States, you know, only a few months into his term as the head of a, of a mob, mafia family, well, that may make sense to, you know, the uh, people in an MSNBC green room but I don't think that that's a very good precedent for, uh, you know, respecting the integrity of our elections and the transfer of um, presidential power. But that is what happened. And so, so people like Weissman, I mean, they pretty much copped to it. They were treating this investigation like they were rolling up a mafia family. And I think that's entirely inappropriate when you're talking about something is particularly since the FBI had lots of information that there really wasn't any collusion by the time the Mueller probe even starts, let alone as it goes into its, you know, two-year, you know, investigation. Now, it's interesting because you mentioned this, these FARA prosecutions, uh, Michael Flynn uh, basically uh, revoking his guilty plea on the basis of them or on the basis of making false statements, and uh, this effort to get Paul Manafort to uh, cooperate by using FARA. But of course, they got both of them Flynn, of course, now being pardoned and having been unjustly prosecuted yeah. in the first place, but they got them on different things anyway. That's the interesting part, which is they, they got them on, they got Manafort on money laundering. That's why he's going to be and, in jail and, for the and rest Farrah. of his life. They, they had and Farrah, right. They did, right. but I mean, basically, the Farrah, the Farrah stuff was unnecessary and criminalizes something that, uh, talk about establishing an interesting precedent. I mean, you're making you're criminalizing activity that has been normal activity in Washington for 50 years. You are, you are, you are suddenly treating it as though, even though we all think it's sort of sleazy that people, you know, go off and be foreign agents and do things that aren't entirely cricket, particularly if they've been former government officials. Uh, nonetheless, if it was never criminal before, but was largely civil or seen as a kind of violation of a regulation, um, that is the effort to use criminal law as a weapon, which yes. is itself a very dangerous precedent because that there's no limiting principle. The Justice Department, which has unlimited powers of prosecution because there's no cost to it, right, 
Right. It needs limiting principles. It has to, it's, its ability to play toy around with the law needs to be limited. And just because people don't like Trump doesn't mean that you're not establishing uh, new methods of behavior that need to be strictly challenged and watched like this behavior that you've gone into in previous pieces, uh, the misuse of the foreign intelligence uh, supervisory, uh, you know, the the FISA right. court that uh, allowed this allowed these illegitimate investigations of Carter Page and George Papadopoulos that we now know were based circular. They were based on their own FISA court applications. FISA was finding that there were there was reason to continue to allow them to surveil based on the fact that they were being surveilled before, based on the fact that they were being surveilled before. Well, it, there would be no surveillance warrant on Carter Page had it not been for opposition research that was uh, gathered on the behest of the Democratic Party. And it turns out that opposition research, and this is another big part of this essay, it contained at least significant components that were probably Russian disinformation. And lots of people who are Russia experts were not like, you know, Republicans or conservative, you know, senators. But people within, and this came out in some of this uh, was the Department of Justice's Inspector General uh, report, and some of this has been in subsequent declassifications. But there were lots of people within the FBI and the intelligence community who were like, this looks like it could be Russian disinformation. And when we finally unraveled how this dossier was produced, it was a former Brookings Institution kind of researcher who, um, you know, is, is a is a Russian speaker, you know, born in Russia, who kind of went on a shoestring budget on behalf of this former British spy and asked a bunch of his friends, hey, have you, have you heard about Paul Manafort? Have you heard about Donald Trump? Have you heard about these people? And, uh, you know, I did talk to him um, and uh, he says he thinks his information was accurate, but nobody else thinks it's accurate at this point. And it seems to me that um, if you remember, when we were first told about the Steele dossier, there was a huge like media narrative that this guy was a terrific spy and he has unbelievable sources in the Kremlin and you could only get if you were like this super spy and that's why we have to take this so seriously. And there were fawning profiles of Christopher Steele once his name came out about what an amazing guy he was and how unfair it was. He was getting all this attention now and how it was unfair that Trump kept attacking him and boy, you know, we gotta take this stuff really seriously. And the people who paid, you know, who sort of commissioned him, the founders of this Fusion GPS firm, wrote a whole book basically defending their work and saying what a wonderful guy he was. And like, then we finally determined like how this document was produced. And it's, it's bogus. Of course, there was going to be Russian disinformation in it. Yeah, he, outsour he outsourced it. He didn't collect he outsourced the information. It to these guys who he outsourced like, it, right. Yeah, exactly. He's taking an economy yeah. class plane ticket and like, you know, meeting with old yeah. friends and saying, have you heard about this? I think I may have heard this. Let me check yeah. what's up. I talked to the guy at the hotel who said, yes, it's true. A lot of prostitutes come to this hotel. Yeah. I mean, this is what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let me, uh, let me yeah. pull back for a second and talk to you about our second sponsor today, Tommy John. Because uh, don't overthink your holiday gifts. You, got, you had a lot of trouble, and we're coming close to the holiday here. Uh, some of us are the smack dab in the middle of our holiday, and since we've all been living in our sweatpants anyway, maybe give your loved ones some better sweatpants, some pro-level Tommy John loungewear, 
Tommy John is making sure this holiday season you can give the gift of comfort to everyone on your list and yourself with Tommy John's men's and women's loungewear. Say goodbye to those old stained sweatpants. Tommy John loungewear is luxuriously soft and guaranteed to fit perfectly with the same level of comfort and innovation that goes into everything Tommy John makes. Plus, Tommy John's loungewear, pajamas, and underwear come in limited edition sets, perfect for gifting, but they sell out quick. That Tommy John underwear puts a permanent end to sticking and chafing, so order now and experience it yourself. And there's no risk with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear. It's free guarantee. Order now. Remember, it's the 15th of December already. 16th. Order now. Go to TommyJohn.com slash commentary for $25 off site-wide and get last-minute holiday deals for a limited time only. Get that $25 off for a limited time at TommyJohn.com slash commentary. That's TommyJohn.com slash commentary. See site for details. Um, Okay, so uh, Framed and Guilty, Eli Lake, fantastic piece on the site at commentarymagazine.com. Read it. Subscribe. It's the end of the year. You've been listening to this podcast now for nine months. If you haven't subscribed, subscribe. Help us support our continuing efforts here. We are a nonprofit 501c3. Subscriptions are not donations. If you want to donate, we have a donate button on our site. But we are not doing this because we we think we're gonna you know make a lot of money and then go off on that plane flight that we can take once we get the vaccine off to Cabo and celebrated our daughter's wedding. We need you to join us at commentarymagazine.com as subscribers so that as we enter this brave new boring Biden era, uh, we have the wherewithal and the means to investigate it, to study it, to criticize it where it needs to be criticized and to turn the page into into a new political reality and maybe Eli Lake will be there to tell us when the Biden team goes off half cocked the way he has been telling us about uh, how the Mueller investigation went off half cocked how the Democratic investigatory committees went off or the the investigatory committees went off half cocked the injustices being done to uh, maybe foolish but innocent public servants um, who didn't do what they were alleged to have done, even though we are very critical of Michael Flynn's recent behavior in the last yeah, couple of weeks. I, I just, right before, we, I know we we're going, but yeah, uh, the, you know, lunacy of what Michael Flynn has been saying about the election uh, can be squarely condemned and should be squarely condemned. But that has no bearing on how he was investigated and the abuses committed against him. Seems right. like so, an obvious point, but at least in Twitter land, yeah. people seem to be saying like, well, then it must have been okay. And like, well, you know, I mean, these two things are sort of unrelated anyway. They are, they are unrelated. And I, I think Noah in particular went off um, like, a, like, a, like a rocket at Michael Flynn for his disgraceful uh, remarks and conduct. The idea that, you know, there needs to be a coup to save the country from, yeah. from Joe yeah. Biden, the guy who limped out on stage on Monday night and could barely get through his speech without collapsing on stage. I mean, let's, let's, you know, if we need a cool going off on him in November of 2016, following his his election to NSA, this is a guy who lacks um, even a modicum of good judgment and has for quite some time. Eli, let me, let me, let me come. Very good judgment. That's all I would say is that he, he, he revolutionized how the intelligence community went after terrorist networks. And the nation owes him for that. And, you know, he made a lot of sacrifices in that regard. 
Okay, we'll take that. And then he and then he uh, got fired, and then he went Mashuga. So that you know, uh, it's hard to get fired. It's hard to be fired by Barack Obama. Doesn't justify going totally Mashuga. Also accused of being a Russian uh, Russian spy too. Well, that's true too. But he but the stuff that Noah was criticizing him for yeah, that no, was I, before well, he in part was because he lent his services yeah. to a Russian-owned network, concealed the money that he got from him uh, in violation of American law, and then provided that that network and the, its Russian sponsors with anti-American propaganda. However, he was railroaded, as Eli said. That's the complicated part here: is that he was all this is true, and yet he was railroaded, and the railroading is what was the important part of that story and uh, the most important part of that that story but um i uh anyway so we will we will bring this to a close on the on the never-ending conversation about michael flynn <laughs> and donald trump um i i think it is in, it is incumbent on us to uh to follow mitch mcconnell's lead and say that uh, the time to discuss this election is now over. Yes. Uh, uh, we're not going to do it anymore, uh, you know, unless something really outrageous happens. We're just not going to touch this topic anymore. And dead enders can go be dead enders. But I think we've we 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 are no we, we can no. Tupac Hugo Chavez is laughing his ass. Out. <laughs> Thank you very much. So Eli Lake, thanks for joining us. Uh, everyone go read his piece. For Noah, Thank Christine, you. and Abe, I am John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. Mm-hmm.